The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Okay, welcome back um, to, uh, to uh, Sunday School here. And uh, uh, our last uh, presentation is, so as you can see, we've been sort of moving from the, the very largest scales of, of what are the science questions associated with, with the carbon cycle, and then here's how we can relate fluorescence to photosynthesis, and, and now uh, Christian is going to tell us a little bit about methods for actually observing um, this, uh, this really neat um, process of the fluorescence of plants. So Christian Frankenberg um, is a scientist at JPL, and uh, he is uh, with Joe, one of the co-leads of this, of this workshop, of course, um, and he received his undergraduate degree um, from the University of Beirut in Germany in geoecology, and then his PhD in, in Heidelberg um, in ecology, physics. environmental physics. Yeah. Okay, and uh, so welcome and thanks. So still some people are in here. That's good to see. Um, because I'll be talking mostly about the retrieval techniques itself and what we learned in the past. Uh, can someone dim the light a little bit here? Because Okay, thanks. Um, so I'll be giving the talk, but of course there's input from many other people that I can't really list here. Like in the background you see one figure from Luis, and this is one of our last, uh, last papers in AMT. So the general outline of the talk is to give a little bit of motivation, which will just be a very short recap of the previous two talks, basically, with a, within one or two slides and then go into more um, like the manifestation of the fluorescent signal itself. This is going into the spectra that uh, Joe has shown and how we actually can measure it from the ground, from aircraft and from space. So these are methods for retrieving the fluorescence from ground. And now the basic where it has been done in the laboratory and on ground for a long time already, now we are moving into space and what are the complications if you wanna see the fluorescent signal from space what are the problems actually? And then in the end, I will also kind of re-show some of the initial results from the Japanese GOSAT satellite, and we'll talk a tiny little bit about what we could actually do in the future with uh, satellites such as OCO2. These are the ones that are definitely, will be flying. OCO2 will be flying in 2014. Dave, please correct me if I'm wrong. So this is um, basically similar to the slide that Joe has shown with, um, with the IC circuit, but just a little bit more simple or intuitive. So in principle, once you have the incident light coming in, it's being absorbed by the chlorophyll. Now I learned it's an exciton here. There are actually these three different pathways where the, the energy can be quenched. The one is actually what the plant wants to do, supposed to do for doing really photosynthesis. The other one is the NPQ term that uh, Joe mentioned here, the non-photochemical quenching through heat. But there's always chlorophyll fluorescence involved and Joe said it, it can't really avoid it. It's always happening once it's being absorbed by chlorophyll. So it's a more direct way of actually probing for uh, the, the photosynthetic process. It's always a byproduct. Um, just a tiny little recap of the global carbon cycle. This is a slide, again, similar to the one that Ian has shown, but this is taken, taken directly from the IPCC AR4 report. And the focus of kind of this talk, previous talk, in fluorescence signal is actually on the gross primary production, GPP. We actually see we have these huge fluxes between the land, land and atmosphere, and 
basically the biggest sink term here of this 120 petagram per year of carbon is GPP. And then on an annual basis, if, if kind of the biomass itself is not increasing over the course of a year, it's kind of balanced out with the respiration term that you see here. Compared to that flux here in GPP, the perturbation by humans, the fossil fuel flux is actually pretty tiny on each and every moment. So the introduction is that there are different gross primary production through photosynthesis by terrestrial ecosystem constitutes the largest global carbon sink. And so far there are two main spatially explicit approaches to quantify GPP globally. One is the meteorology driven full land surface carbon cycle models coupled or uncoupled. Then there are remote sensing driven and or tower based semi-empirical models. And with remote sensing driven, I mean Satellites like MODIS, MERIS, that typically measure something like FPAR, leaf area index, and kind of greenness indices. But of course, there are always uncertainties in all these existing approaches. One is model sensitivities. Do we get the parameterizations right? And looking back at how complex actually the photosynthetic apparatus is, it's, it's not really an easy, easy problem. And then there's the other complication that most of the remotely sensed data are indirectly inferred from something like greenness which is not always indicative of actually the activity of, of plants. Um, looking a little bit into the future and the problem that was already alluded to in the previous talks is like, can we use fluorescence to disentangle the problems in the carbon cycle, which is basically um, disentangling from the net flux, the GPP part and the respiration part, which would be probably something like the holy grail in the, in the end. Because on an annual basis, the natural CO2 fluxes are almost balanced. If you look at the uptake here, 120 petagram, and then there's the different respiration terms that actually add up if actually your tree in the next year looks exactly the same as before, and all the litter that is on the ground. And with satellites such as GOSAT and OCO2, they, they, are actually being, they have been built to retrieve atmospheric CO2 concentrations that are then being used to infer net fluxes as a function of space and time. So ideally, we will get the net flux contribution from these satellites anyhow, because that's what they are supposed to measure. But then if we, with the same satellite, also have a target of the fluorescence term, which is indicative of the GPP term, in principle, you, you should be able to disentangle the GPP and the respiration. And this is important if we want to understand, actually, not just that El Nino or some other effects change the global carbon cycle and change the net flux, we also not want to know what changed, if it's a change in respiration, if it's a change in GPP, a mix of both. Actually, if we have fluorescence on top of the atmospheric CO2 measurements, that will give us a better handle on really getting a process-based understanding of what's actually happened. Um, this is a brief recap of the most traditional optical remote sensing parameters, which are mainly based on the absorption spectrum of chlorophyll. Um, what you see here in the top panel is a function of wavelengths, the absorption by the different chlorophyll A and B and carotenoids. Don't know how to pronounce it really. Um, but you see most of the uh, remote sensing driven methods to retrieve something like greenness are based on this absorption peak here from chlorophyll. And what this absorption peak here actually causes is the so-called red edge in uh, terrestrial vegetation, which is modeled here from, it's a slide picture I took from Lewis. So you have wavelength here and then you have top of canopy reflectance as a function of leaf area index, which is actually for those, no, I think in this room probably everybody knows what the leaf area index is. And you see this sudden increase here in the reflectance 
at the 700 nanometer range and the deep absorption here in this area, which is basically the peak of the peripheral A here. So basically with increasing leaf area index, you get a steepening of this gradient here in this area. And what typically is being done, something like a normalized differential vegetation index is just using the near infrared value, which is on the long wavelength side of the red edge and the red radiance, which is on the short wavelength side of the red edge. You build kind of the ratio of the two, you divide it, you subtract the red from the near infrared and divide it by the sum of the two, you get, an, you get a handle on how, how much chlorophyll was in the sample and that's how you retrieve NDVI. But you also see another thing that while here the jumps from one to the other are pretty steep at low leaf area indices, they're getting closer and closer to each other once the leaf area index is pretty high. So there are some saturation effects also in there. So the greener the vegetation is, the more difficult it is actually to actually retrieve them, especially if you look from space, because then scattering effects in the atmosphere will have a bigger impact on changes that you measure here. So this is just a schematic. The near infrared is predominantly kind of backscattered into the uh, atmosphere, so you would observe it, observe it from space, whereas the visible penetrates through the canopy and is being absorbed within it, so there's no backscatter signal in there. This is a nice example that I just found in the internet. So if you just take some regular pictures, this is supposed to be now a visible channel. It's more like an RGB index for a RGB image from a regular camera. But then in principle, there are cameras that are sensitive to the near infrared. If you take a picture in this wavelength range, you would get something like this. And in principle, you can just create a picture of an NDVI of this particular scene. You would get something like this. And you clearly see like the green patches here that are indicative of chlorophyll absorption. And uh, if you just have, would have an artificial plan that doesn't really have the absorption feature of the chlorophyll A at this wavelength range, then you wouldn't really see it popping out here, even though your eye would perce perceive it as being green. Um, from space, this is mainly being done, at least yeah, in the US, and depending on whether you're in the US or in Europe, with satellites like MODIS and MERS, which are basically images that measure broadband wavelength channels in different areas. So they have one near infrared channel, they have one red channel, and they can actually retrieve something like NDVI. And they also infer byproducts, which in this case is GPP, where you have a mean annual, a mean five-year mean of GPP derived from the MODIS data set. And there are, of course, a lot of advantages to those sensors, which is one is there's a high spatial resolution because you, you have a lot of energy to sample if you just have kind of broad wavelength bands that you measure, like with your camera. So you can really go into the sub-kilometer spatial scale with these images. And you also can do full global mapping depending on how you design the instrument. But there are, of course, also kind of disadvantages here, which is that it's susceptible to atmospheric contamination. So once you have a tiny little cloud in the field of view or the scene is not heterogeneous, so it's halfway a city and halfway a tree. If you look out here at Caltech, there are plenty of trees around, but there are always buildings in between as well. So it's these kind of wash out of severely distort really the retrieval that you see. It can saturate in dense forests and it's indicative of greenness, not really activity. And this is an example of kind of the gap filling approach for um, the MODIS GPP product where you have something like FPAR on this range and then they typically have this eight day repeat cycle. But you see that every once in a while the FPAR is really severely reduced in this case and this is due to cloud contamination and they have actually have to apply some gap filling methods to actually bring the signal back up to realistic values in this case. 
but there are definitely problems in kind of getting rid of some of the atmospheric effects in these traditional methods. And actually, I'll get to back to that later a little bit because I think this is one of the main advantages of the fluorescence method. The epsilon that Joe mentioned, which is basically the change of the fluorescence signal, if you would look at it from the ground directly and from space, is actually pretty small, even in scattering atmospheres. Whereas if you have something like EVI, it is even more tricky to retrieve it from space. But I'll get back to that point later again. So this is a repetition of Joe's slide from the Doma et al. paper in uh, IEEE in 2010, where they actually measured kind of this nice time period over a, corn field, a crop field somewhere where there's no water stress. You have this nice correlation with uh, fluorescence as a function of PAR. Of course, because PAR triggers, triggers fluorescence and GPP, you always have kind of this first, first order linear relationship. But then of, after a prolonged time of uh, no rain, so there's maximum water stress, uh, the fluorescence signal is actually heavily subdued, which is due to increases in the non-photochemical quenching. And then after some rain, it's almost recovered. And then particularly, I like this sentence here. It is worth noting that neither the chlorophyll content of leaves nor the NDVI indicates a noticeable variation during the measure measuring campaign. So basically, if you would just measure chlorophyll content or NDVI, you wouldn't have seen any impact of this drought signal on the plant at all. And this is something where fluorescence could come in and actually tell you that the plant is physiologically changing to the uh, water stress. It's probably also a reason why fluorescence is of interest to some people who want to do something like precision farming um, and going into the agriculture um, business. Um, coming back to the signal itself, how it looks like, I hope you can see it now. So this is supposed to read wavelength, and this is the fluorescence signal. This is from a paper from Amoros Lopez in uh, 2008 at different times of day that you can probably now not read. I can read it on my screen. But these different times of day is actually, so this is the peak. So this is the noon time here. And then you have, uh, the, but the basic shape of the fluorescence is actually um, the same. And if you look at uh, the same picture, so the, the shape only here, where together with a reflectance spectrum, this is from the study by Guantadal and JGR in 2010, wavelength as a function, and then top of atmosphere radiance and top of canopy fluorescence here. You basically see in the top, of atmosphere radiance, something that you would observe as a satellite. The red edge here, so the increase in the, in the signal, and then this part is on the longer wavelength side of the red edge. And this band here is actually a strong oxygen absorption band, the so-called O2A band, something we actually measure with GOSAT and OCO2 at high spectral resolution. So this is an oxygen band here. There's an oxygen band here. There's some water lines here in the middle and it's full with other Fraunhofer lines, so-called solar lines. And what we actually see from space, look at the different scales, is a signal that's pretty bright, and then a tiny little fluorescent signal superimposed on it. So there's a, it, it just adds up barely a percent or two percent to the background radiance. That's, all, that's the only kind of additional signal that we see from the fluorescence. And in the following slides, I'll go into like a, how we actually can measure this tiny little disturbance to the background radiance. So how do we detect it? If only it was that easy. Um, you probably notice if you go to some museums, you go, you look at all the minerals and sometimes they have a chamber where it's dark and you just turn the UV light on and you actually see the minerals 
fluorescing in different colors. So you can directly, with your eye, you can actually see the fluorescence. This is a nice picture here. So, and the fluorescence is actually, it appears at the longer wavelengths because kind of the absorbed energy, um, if it falls back, there's some non-radiative transition in between and it doesn't fall back to the initial state or it went to other stages there. So the energy jump going back in the, ex um, falling back to the ground set is actually lower energy, so higher wavelengths. And in this case, it's illuminated with UV and um, then it's being re-emitted in the visible spectral range. You can directly see it just because you can turn off the light. But of course, if you are in those chambers and you turn on the light, you wouldn't see anything. You would just see the minerals, but you wouldn't see, the fluorescence would still be there, but it will be kind of one, two, three percent of the, the overall illumination that you see. So you wouldn't see this picture at all. You would just see the visible light from the lamp. Um, in the laboratory, you of course can also do that for fluorescence because in principle, as Joe said, uh, you can filter out the incoming near-infrared light and then just photograph the chlorophyll emission using near-infrared sensitive detectors because then you can be sure that the, the near-infrared emission that's coming from fluorescence is not contaminated with some background radiance that's coming in the field. And this is a nice picture, I think, where they used some near-infrared um, sensitive so you can, in principle, take pictures if you are in the laboratory. This is the reference here. So what's the problem from space? So under natural conditions, of course, we can't just turn off the light. So we always <laughs> have to live with a contamination by real radiance in the kind of far-red near-infrared region. So the fluorescence emission is always contaminated with a reflected solar light. And it, it's always a pretty weak signal. So the fluorescence is always, the reflected solar light basically dominates the signal. It's about 100 times stronger than the fluorescence. So what we in principle need are on-off wavelengths, similar to kind of drawing the curtain in this scene where you have the minerals, where we know that a part of the wavelength that's incoming is blocked. And if we measure in this tiny little wavelength area where we know that there's no incoming light, we can just measure the outgoing light and we are sure that it's fluorescence and nothing else. But of course, this is always pretty tricky. So I try to create a graph with some on and off wavelengths where we know that there's, in the atmosphere, for instance, in spectral regions with high atmospheric absorption, like the oxygen A band that I've shown you before, you can actually kind of mimic these conditions that I've shown you before. So if you have incoming radi radiance here, the off wavelengths would be kind of a rather transmittive region in the atmosphere, and then you have the red one, which is a strong absorption in the atmosphere. So you have high incoming light at the top of atmosphere, but then it's being almost virtually ex extinguished. I couldn't make it any thinner than this. So imagine this is almost zero. Then of course you also don't have any reflected light in this wavelength range <coughs> coming from the sun. Whereas the fluorescence emission doesn't really care. So in principle, in the, on wave, uh, in the off wavelengths where you have the signal, you can actually there, the fluorescence term is really only a tiny little disturbance to the background. But in the on wavelengths, where you have a strong atmospheric absorption or no, no incoming radiance at all, you can actually just measure this one. And depending on how small you can get this one here, you can use this to directly uh, retrieve fluorescence. And this method is actually being used from the ground since a long time, because if you look at the oxygen A-band, and look at ground-based measurements, so this is the oxygen A-band, it's, it's virtually saturated depending on the spectral resolution that you use. So there's this branch here with a peak at 760 nanometers, so this is a pretty 
we would call it an OCO land low resolution spectrometer, but some of you probably call it high resolution. This is almost going down to zero transmission in this area here. <clears throat> so if this is the solar irradiance coming in, and this is kind of the target radiance, if you put this spectrometer just directly above the canopy, above the plant, all the plant is doing is just taking this incoming signal, if you would compare it to a spectral on surface next to it, it just shifts it up by a certain amount. So it just adds a fluorescent signal to this term. And you can, by simple equations, you can actually deduce the fluorescence, but to make it a little bit simpler, I just assume that the incoming radiation here would be zero. And if it would be zero, it would be completely easy, because then most of these terms actually cancel out for the kind of limes of the incoming radi radiance towards zero, you actually have fluorescence. It's just a signal that you measure here in the deep absorption band. And this is the way it's being done on the ground, and it works really nice. And the sensitivity, of course, improves with, improves with a degree of atmospheric saturation. So the closer this actually goes to zero, the easier it is to retrieve fluorescence. And the O2 bands are ideal because they are almost saturated. <clears throat> depending on the instrument spectral resolution and position. But if you look at this range here, it's actually a pretty wide feature. So it's, it's spanning a couple of nanometers, so it's not really narrow. So it's easier to build moderate resolution spectrometers that can actually pick up the signal without really having costs like a satellite. Uh, I'll go forward. So this is another example if you, if you for instance, build something like the apparent reflectance of this scene over um, a canopy. This is uh, from Mironi and Colombo and RSE in 2006. You actually see that the O2 features are actually filled in. So the apparent reflectance of this plant is actually being artificially increased just by the fluorescence emission. And here you see the oxygen A band and the oxygen B band. And so to, as a bottom line from, from the ground, you can actually easily use these O2 lines to retrieve fluorescent signal. And it's pretty robust and widely used. And it's also being used in studies like the one of Doma et al. that I've shown before. And it's non-intrusive, so it's passive. So you don't need to have any illumination there. Um, if you go to an airplane and don't really fly too high and don't have too much scattering in between, you can still use the oxygen bands. And this is an example from a study by Maya et al. I think it's a book chapter, actually, where the nice thing about Aircraft, of course, is also that you can get fine spatial scales, <coughs> easier than with a satellite. Where you have here on the left side just categorization of some cornfields with different numbers. And then, let me see, in the middle, this is panel B, is actually the sun-induced fluorescence in relative units. And then on the right panel, there's something like an NDVI index. And then if you plot them against each other, you get some kind of linear correlation between NDVI and fluorescence for the different kind of cornfields here, but they are not the same for each and every cornfield. So there's some, redundant, there's some additional information in there that can't be explained with one of these. So for, um, in this case, NDVI and fluorescence correlate, but the relationship differs per field. So there's independent information in there. So it's not just a redundant new measurement. That's what this slide should say. Now here comes the problem. Once you go into space, um, things get a little bit more tricky. So if the observer is in space, there's actually a huge amount of atmosphere still between the canopy, the plant, and where you want to observe it. So it actually means that the oxygen A-band that was sitting in between and making the signal dark for the ground-based measurements, it's actually the fluorescence that's 
coming from the ground and going up to the satellite, all the signal is being reabsorbed and it's getting much, much weaker at the top of atmosphere. This is an example from the ancillary material of our GL paper where we have the solar irradiance here at the top and then a modeled plant fluorescence at the surface. And then we would measure backscattered radiance at top of atmosphere with something like a GOSAT and OCO2 spectral resolution in this panel. And then the, the black one would be without fluorescence and the dotted one would be with fluorescence. And here you see, in principle, there's only a tiny little change in the measured top of atmosphere radiance. So there's no, this, this one is not filled in anymore completely because it's being reabsorbed on the way to the, to the detector. And this is indicated in this panel here where the wavelength scale is missing now. Um, they actually have, this is the fluorescent signal that comes to the top of atmosphere. So you actually see the reabsorption by oxygen of the fluorescent signal on the way to the detector. And this is only one of the things that make it, makes it a little bit more complicated to um, actually retrieve it from space using the oxygen bands. And I'm focusing on the O2A band here only for now. This is just another slide kind of telling the same story where we just maybe have a nicer figure here where we have the wavelength range here, the radiance that we measure at the top of atmosphere, and then the fluorescent signal superimposed on air with red. And just look at the different scales. So the fluorescent signal is a factor 100 smaller than the one that we actually measure at the radiance level. And here, in this case, there's reabsorption by oxygen. So the signal is much weaker. So if you want to look at this one here, there would be much more noise. On top of that, if we would only have the O2A band, which is actually what we currently have to live with because we only have satellites like GOSAT and OCO2 in the future, <coughs> um, we have another problem. So there's solar, radi solar irradiance incoming. This would be top of atmosphere radiance. And what's shown here in the panel C to G is actually Jacobians, which is the derivative of the measurement that you would measure from space towards certain parameters that kind of can be changed in the atmosphere and the surface. So this, for instance, is a Jacobian with respect to surface pressure, which is not always perfectly known. This is the Jacobian with respect to albedo, to aerosol optical thickness, to the height of the aerosol layer, and to fluorescence. And you actually see this, this grayish areas just to zoom up on one of these particular O2 lines to make it a little bit more illustrative. You see actually that the shape of the Jacobians here for the fluorescence signal is pretty similar to the Jacobians with respect to some of the scattering parameters and the albedo terms, which actually means that the Jacobians are not really linearly independent. So it's pretty difficult to disentangle all these processes from each other. And actually, we, we created an artificial measurement and tried with fluorescence and tried to fit it with a model that completely ignores fluorescence, and we can get a perfect fit. So this is, a, this is shown here, actually, in this bottom example. So we actually have a perturbed measurement where we have fluorescence in there, and then we fit it once where we assume that we know perfectly the aerosol optical thickness and the height of the aerosol layer. And even then, we can drive down spectral residuals in the fit almost below our typical SNR signal-to-noise ratio line in the gray one here. But of course, it's a little unrealistic to say that we know the aerosol optical thickness perfectly. So if we fit aerosol optical thickness, and here in the bottom panel also the aerosol height, we can virtually get a perfect fit of the scene without even accounting for fluorescence. So it's a, it's a rather ill-posed problem to just use the oxygen A-band to retrieve fluorescence from space. <clears throat> so there are different ways to tackle it. One is 
using reference surfaces. So if, for instance, you assume that you fly over a field where the scattering properties of the atmosphere change only slowly in space and time, but the fluorescence signal changes rapidly, so you basically have different spatial scales of the scene, you can actually take some barren surfaces and set this to zero. So it's kind of your reference index. And this is a study taken from MERIS data, because MERIS, as opposed to MODIS, they have one little channel which is right smack in the O2A band. But it's a pretty broadband feature there, where it's actually then feasible to extract some of the fluorescence signal there. Um, so the idea, as I said before, is actually to use these to just set the signal to zero. Um, the problem is, of course, we barren surfaces must exist. On top of that, the scattering should be spatially less variable than FS, than the fluorescence signal, which is not always working. It works for fields like cornfield-like areas, but not extended homogeneous areas like large forests, the Amazon or some other forests, because there probably this relationship between the different spatial scales is reversed. So they're probably, the aerosols change more rapidly than actually FS. But it is one method to get rid of it, of the problem. The other method is actually um, use solar lines, not oxygen lines. <clears throat> and this is a picture of uh, Josef von Fraunhofer, who was actually one of the first to discover that the light that's coming from the sun is not a pure black body spectrum, but there are certain absorption features in the light. So this is a picture of, kind of this would be the black body spectrum from the sun. And then you have the red spectral region here, orange, yellow, green, the whole range. And these little grayish lines that you see here, he identified as solar, frown, solar lines. And at least in our community, we always refer to pure solar lines as Fraunhofer lines. It's sometimes kind of in the, in the fluorescence community, is often a little bit mis, mixed up. So sometimes even some uh, O2 lines are called Fraunhofer lines because of the history of the method, I think. But in principle, only strictly speaking, only solar lines are called Fraunhofer lines. So it is not a pure black body spectrum, but you can actually have absorption lines from elements like iron, magnesium, nat natrium that are present in colder outer layers of the sun. Um, however, these dark features are very narrow in kind of, they are only 0.0 something nanometers wide. So they are dark that you can use to measure the infilling, but they are very narrow. So you need higher resolution spectrometers. And this is an example where actually, this is even from 1975 from Plaschik et al. The Fraunhofer line discriminator where they actually, I don't even know whether they flew it. So they, they have this airborne spectrometer that's actually supposed to just focus on Fraunhofer lines and measure them and measure the infilling of a Fraunhofer line. And reading the paper, they always had Fraunhofer lines in mind. They really didn't really care about O2 lines in this case. But the, the, the principle is the same. You measure basically the infilling of this deep absorption line. Coming back to that slide here, I've shown you this almost perfect residual that we can get here if we do not account for fluorescence. It's not completely true. We have outliers. So we would have spectral residuals that we can't fit away in this range and in this range. These are Fraunhofer lines in the incoming solar radiation. So in the spectra that we have with GOSAD and OCO2, we actually have a couple of Fraunhofer lines in there. It's not perfect. There are not many, but we have some. And they are almost, some of them in natural transmission, they are going down to maybe 30% transmission level and convolved with the instrument resolution, they are probably at 50% or so. So they are not completely black, but they are there and measurable. And they would give us residuals that are above, above the line. 
above the signal-to-noise ratio. So basically, we can use these Fraunhofer lines instead of O2 lines from space to completely solve the problem of kind of this atmospheric interference. And this is the main advantage. In the absence of inelastic scattering, for instance, a rotational Raman scattering causing the ring effect and the UV invisible, the fractional depth of these solar absorption features is not changed at all within the atmosphere. Only the fluorescence fills them up. And there's no reabsorption in the Earth atmosphere and no interference with atmospheric scattering. The challenge, of course, is you need high spectral resolution to sample these Fraunhofer lines. <clears throat> and then there's always a trade-off between spectral resolution and spatial resolution. So the narrower, kind of, the higher spectral resolution the one you want, you have to kind of trade it off with um, the spatial resolution of the instrument because you just need the signal to come in. And this is the idea. So we basically have this tiny little, uh, this is one example of a fitting range where you ha we have these four relatively strong Fraunhofer lines in the range of a GOSAT spectrometer. And we can actually use this in a full spectral fit where we minimize basically the chi-square of the measurement. We can build a really simple model where we just have the solar term here and the relative fluorescence term and then just model the background continuum radiance with a polynomial and then minimize the whole problem. So we have to do it that way. We can't just use three spectral points. We have to do the full spectral fitting. Otherwise, the retrievals would be way too noisy. And this, would, this is an example where we did the sensitivity studies, uh, how, what the single measurement noise would be as a function of full with half maximum of the detector and signal to noise ratio. And GOSAT is in this range here. So depending on where you are, you basically have noise of about 0.4% of continuum level radiance to one and more percent. So that's basically the single measurement noise that we have. It's unfortunately pretty high, but it's what we have to live with. OCO2 will be, even though the spectral resolution will be a little bit worse, it will have better single measurement precision. And we will have lots more measurements. So there's some kind of um, nice future to, to see here. <clears throat> and then what we did, of course, is um, because we were not only interested in the fluorescent signal itself, since the fluorescent signal disturbs our O2A band, we are also interested in how it kind of affects our XCO2 retrievals that we're actually supposed to do from GOSAT and OCO2, because it's our bread and butter. Um, Chris implemented the fluorescence um, term actually into the orbit simulator. The orbit simulator is something where we have a realistic um, scene of scattering from taken from various instruments and measurements where we actually can mimic radiances measured by OCO2 or GOSAT under realistic conditions. So the scattering fields will be highly variable. We have different surface pressure. We have cirrus clouds in there. We have all kinds of different clouds and aerosol properties in the simulator. But we can implement the fluorescence signal in the very same simulator. And this is the same figure as before, but maybe you didn't realize that it actually went through the full radiative transfer scheme. <clears throat> where you have an example where you have the fluorescence radiance at top of atmosphere at a scattering optical depth of 0.46 and in the pure Rayleigh atmosphere. And the fluorescence signal in this case actually varied only a tiny little bit. But the main message is this one. Um, so we simulate FS retrievals as done for GOSAT using the orbit simulator. And we here plot retrieved versus true. So this is the true fluorescence that we actually know because we modeled it. And this is the measured fluorescence. But we have two different populations of dots. One is the true one at the top of atmosphere, which is actually directly what we measure, where we get the perfect one-to-one -one line, something that we want to have. And the red one would be the true fluorescence at the surface, so directly above the plant. 
And then you see somewhat more scatter, but it's not that bad actually, and this is not at all cloud filtered. So there are heavy clouds in between here. If we look at this plot differently, if we basically build the fraction of the fluorescence that makes it from the plant to the top of atmosphere, which is similar to this epsilon factor that uh, Joe was referring to, so one would be perfect. We actually measure from space exactly the same as what the plant is emitting there. Um, then we get this picture, and at low aerosol and cloud optical depth, we actually get to the factor one, of course, because there's almost no scattering in this wavelength range. But even at higher optical depth, and 10 to the zero is a one, and then here we are at optical thicknesses of three to four, still more than 80% of the fluorescence makes it to the top of atmosphere. So it's pretty insensitive to atmospheric scattering. Whereas if you would have a cloud at optical thickness of three, your NDVI would tell you any rubbish you wanna have. But fluorescence would actually still see it. So there's, I think this is one of the, one of the biggest advantages of this method, actually. If you just use frown over lines, you can actually, in principle, retrieve it through clouds, at least as long as they are non-absorbing and highly scattering. And this is mainly because the fluorescence signal is kind of maintained in the radiation field of the atmosphere. And especially if kind of the phase function of the scattering particles is highly, is kind of peaked, has a strong forward peak, it just goes into the detector again. Oh, that's, that's, of course, in this case, it's um, with the reference at the surface, I mean above the canopy already. So what, what's happening within the canopy, that's a whole, whole other story. And then there's, it's hard to, yeah, there you really need to model, like, the fluorescence that's coming from the lower leaf level, uh, layers and how it propagates up. But since we so far have kind of measurements with a footprint of 10 kilometers, probably is a little too early to think about these details. Chris? It's probably worth me pointing out that due to a caveat in the way we, sorry, due to a quirk in the way we did this, we, we only, Christian showed us an optical depth of 10, but even an optical depth of 10 is not actually optically thick, but it's really thick to have, have optical depths of like 100, three, yeah. several hundred. We haven't actually yet tested, tested what happens to really yeah, there it will also strongly depend on what the actual surface albedo is because if it, the light is being reflected by the cloud to the ground and then going back up again, so there's some, some absorption in between. But definitely, this is probably one of the least sensitive uh, measurements that you can make from space with respect to atmospheric scattering. And this epsilon that you say, so you mentioned this epsilon that may be a complication, but it's a, if it's almost always one, it makes the problem a lot more easier. And you also mentioned that, in principle, fluorescence, the, the relationship between fluorescence and GPP is coming a lot through FPAR, or let's better say APAR, the absorbed photosynthetic active radiation. It's, it's really a direct measurement of APAR as opposed to something like MODIS, where it's indirectly inferred from greenness. And even this relationship even holds in the presence of clouds. So whereas in the case of a MODIS-like measurement in the presence of clouds, you don't get an APAR at all. You don't get anything. But in this case, you, you still get it. Um, and then the third method that may be possible to tackle the problem is, so far we have to live with what GOSAT and OCO2 provides. So the other method may be to use the entire emission spectrum 
So if you actually sample the entire range, something that's proposed to, do, to be done with flex, which unfortunately doesn't really have the highest uh, spectral resolution that it's, so it's not really able to use the Fraunhofer alliance to retrieve fluorescence, but it has kind of some moderate spectral resolution and will cover as an advantage the whole spectral range. Then it may be possible that some of these ill postness that I mentioned before, if you just use the oxygen A band, is actually being alleviated. But I don't want to go into much detail of this method. So the biggest advantage is actually that co covering the whole range will not only allow you to retrieve chlorophyll fluorescence, but by sampling the red edge as well, you have, you, with the same instrument, you will also get leaf area index FA power chlorophyll content retrievals. So that's pretty powerful. And if you retrieve fluorescence at different wavelength regions, you actually can get these fluorescence ratios at the different wavelengths that are powerful indicators as well. And then the best of both worlds, that's my personal opinion, um, to have high spectral resolution so that you can actually use the Fraunhofer lines, because only if you use them are you insensitive to scattering, and extend the wavelength range to also cover kind of the short wavelength peak. Because then you would know that your measurement is insensitive to atmospheric scattering, but you can also measure this range where the fractional contribution of fluorescence is actually a lot higher, and you can, in principle, infer the fluorescence spectrum completely. Um, moving on to GOSAT. GOSAT, of course, it's not a fluorescence observing satellite, it's a greenhouse gases observing satellite. So that's what it was built for, just the same way as OCO was planned, but then unfortunately failed um, during launch. The nickname is Ibuki, um, and we are always strongly collaborating with the Japanese, which is fortunate because kind of our satellite is now somewhere in the southern, uh, southern ocean. Um, but in principle, the specs for GOSAT are pretty similar to those of OCO2, so we can use it. So this is the slide that uh, Joe has shown before. This is the GOSAT satellite, and the footprint is roughly 10 kilometer diameter. And this is a typical oxygen A-band fit that we get from the uh, GOSAT satellite. And what we use the oxygen band for primarily in the greenhouse gas retrievals is to really fit for scattering properties. So we actually, in principle, we use three different bands together, which is the oxygen A band and then two, uh, one weak and one strong CO2 band to directly infer XCO2 and then also atmospheric scattering properties in one go. But it's a complex thing. So one retrieval with three bands a couple of years ago took about a day, I think. And then it went down to an hour. Now we are roughly somewhere at 10 minutes, but a single sounding takes five to 10 minutes of retrieval. So to do this in a kind of modus-like uh, amount of pixels, it's pretty tough. <clears throat> and then there's a caveat. So every time we talk about GOSAT and I show these nice world maps, and these world maps look smooth, but they only, to be honest, they only look smooth because I grid them on two by two degrees. If I would grid them on one by one degrees, you would suddenly see holes popping up because there are always certain spots that are never ever being measured. And the reason is that GOSAD, because it's mainly interested in atmospheric, long-lived atmospheric trace gases such as CO2 where the spatial scales are just so much coarser. So it's enough to measure each, like every 100 kilometers or so to measure the field and infer concentrations. But for the vegetation community, this is of course something like oh my gosh, we don't want to have this. So this is just an example that I made over the Sahara where you have the different footprints of GOSAT superimposed here over the northern part of Africa. So there are always large gaps in between these footprints. So it's not a mapper. We just sample here and there. So there are huge gaps in between. 
and it's important to keep that in mind. <clears throat> and GoSat was designed to just have this more or less regular pattern that repeats every three days, because we wanted to have a kind of closer look at the global XCO2 concentration. Whereas OCO is a little bit different in a way that it doesn't really sample here and there, but it, it basically measures a stripe of footprints of a few kilometers wide. But in that case, it's a continuous stripe, but there's always a huge distance also between the different stripes. So both measurements, both satellites will not be mappers, something that you would think is ideal for a vegetation mission. And it's important to keep that in mind. The, the biggest advantage of OCO is actually that we have about 50 times more measurements. And as I've shown before, our main problem with GOSAT right now is high noise. So we have to average a lot in time and space to actually get a meaningful global map or a meaningful signal. Whereas with OCO, we will probably can reduce the averaging times just because we can beat it down with a lot of measurements. And the footprint sizes are also way smaller. So moving on to GOSAT, this is actually then the first retrieval paper and the first real retrievals that were coincidentally, I think, probably submitted within a few hours time difference, <laughs> not knowing of each other. So this is our work, this is Jonas' work here with the first retrievals from GOSAT, using in principle similar methods that are also based on the Fraunhofer lines. I didn't mention it before, so from now on, it's actually more, um, no, this comes later, sorry. Um, so by now, we actually have three different retrieval groups more or less doing similar things. This is the work by John Adal in Biogeosciences um, 2010 and 2012. These are our retrievals that Joe had shown before from GL and uh, now, Lewis has two different approaches in RSE 2012, where one is the physics-based, something more like what we do, a high-resolution modeling on a fine, fine spectral resolution, taking the convolution of the signal into account, but also a very fast singular value decomposition method that both seem to be very consistent. The main take-home message is probably, despite differences in the techniques, the methods agree actually pretty well. <clears throat> There's one slide I just want to dedicate on the fluorescence from Skiomaki, something new that uh, the Goddard people came up with. It also, in bio, that's the 2012 part here, and if you, if you could just see it here, so sorry about the quality here. There's some signal of the fluorescence still going into this 800 nanometer range here, and Skiomaki has a lower spectral resolution than GOSAT, so it can't really use the Fraunhofer lines in the 750 nanometer range, but there's a pretty broad Fraunhofer feature in this 850 nanometer range. It's broad enough to be sampled by Skiomaki. So they actually can use this one to infer, where is it, the skia in this lower panel here, the skia fluorescence signal that's on first glance is pretty similar to what they measure with GOSAT. I'll go over those because that's kind of what caused uh, our hair to disappear for half a year, where we found a problem in the GOSAT satellite, a so-called zero-level offset in the O2A band, a Fourier transform system that caused an artificial signal popping up over bright surfaces such as Antarctica, where we were wondering what the heck is causing something like fluorescence or infilling over these bright ice areas. But we got rid of it, and it also helped our XCO2 retrievals in the end. <coughs> and then have this global fluorescence retriever from GOSAT. This is again the global annual average. Since Joe has shown this, I'll go on and show it again at a wider scale. And this is the fluorescence. And this is the Jena MPI BGC GPP model. And I can just flip back and forth a little. 
And probably if it wasn't for the measurement noise in the GoSat data that you see here, for instance, you wouldn't really directly be able to say which is which because it's, it's pretty damn similar, to be honest. <clears throat> you even see like this little strip here the, in the US where you have the large uh, forest areas here, kind of the Rockies that are more or less deserted actually on both, and then the signal here in Eurasia, the Amazon and uh, Africa having the highest signals. Um, I'll just skip this now because we've talked about this relationship already where these points actually stand out <clears throat> and the different relationships with the different GPP models. And Joe has said that we actually have seen this pretty good agreement, scaringly good agreement, linear relationship with GPP. There's an example where it didn't fit in one season. So we, this is actually a latitudinal cross-section of GPP and the fluorescence signal that we observe. And in all seasons, it actually, so the green one is the GPP model with the uncertainty estimate, kind of the shaded area here, where in most seasons, we actually track the seasonal variability of the signal pretty damn close to the MPI GPP model. But in boreal summer, there are some kind of discrepancies where we have a lot higher values kind of in the <coughs> in these areas around 10, 20 degree latitude range, which are mostly croplands in Asia, as far as I recall. But we also have an earlier decrease here at the higher latitudes in this case. And I don't want to go into details about speculating why that is at this point here. But we tried to build something like a fluorescence yield um, for the different biomes, and we saw that needle leaf forest actually has the lowest yields, and then croplands and evergreen broadleaf forest with the highest fluorescence yield in that case. <clears throat> and that gives you some, some idea, initial idea, that fluorescence can not only be used as a kind of greenness index, but also be used in the long run to quantify or at least give a hint at something like the photosynthetic efficiency of the plants. Um, so this is mostly now for just late in the day, looking at some nice pictures. Similar plots as before, comparison with GPP. This is a two-year average now where we have fluorescence in the top panel and the GPP from Jena in the bottom panel. And then all the time on the right side, you actually see the correlation plot of GPP versus the fluorescence that we observe. And this is a two-year average. And now I will just go through monthly means. And one thing is, Going through monthly means to make it not completely noisy, I have to grid it on four by four degrees, and it still always looks a little more noisy than, than the other measurements because we just don't have enough measurements to beat down the noise. But we can go to something like monthly spatial scale, uh, temporal scales. So this is June, where we actually see still the, the uh, higher northern latitudes being active here. Peak in this area actually corresponds pretty well to the one observed in the Yenna model. And I'll just, just go through in time. Um, for one year, I actually added our bread and butter product, which is the ACOS XCO2 here on the top right panel. This would be for July 2009, 395 ppm CO2 in the atmosphere, 375. And in July, you of course see the large decrease in the XCO2 at the high northern latitudes, which are actually being caused by the GPP of the preceding month. So where the CO2 is actually being taken up. <coughs> If we move on, in August, we see somehow is this big peak here, the um, corn belt in the, in the US. If you go to September, October, so now slowly the plants are really shutting down in the Northern Hemisphere up to December. In the Southern Hemisphere, we actually see these areas here in South America. I think these are mainly agricultural areas there as well. It's 
really high signals. And then it's moving back up to April. It's just starting here in the more kind of almost subtropical areas of the US. It's moving northwards and you see the nice signal. So you can always compare it with the GPP estimate, which is a model, of course, but you can go see the seasonal cycle and the fluorescence kicking in here in the summer months and then going down again towards December. Um, to conclude with an honest assessment, at least it's honest <laughs> from my point of view, maybe not from everybody's point of view, um, that while GOSAT provides a unique new data set, the application of fluorescence from GOSAT is still a little bit hampered by this, the high signal measurement noise and incomplete and infrequent like spatial and temporal sampling. OCO2 will partially alleviate the first problem as it will provide 50 times more data. So we can actually, like the standard error goes down by the square root of 50, beating down the standard errors and having smaller than two by two square kilometers of ground pixels. So that probably also means that on a particular OCO pixel, we have the chance to actually observe much higher fluorescence values than with GOSAT. Because on 10 by 10 kilometer ground pixels, you always have a kind of a diluted signal. So the, the pure fluorescence signal making it there will always be washed out because you would need uh, something like the tropics always, like one scene which is completely homogeneous and highly active, which you probably don't get in the much of the rest of the world. But it's something like one by one, 1 1.5 by two kilometers. I don't know what the final numbers are, Dave. Um, we can actually observe smaller spots that pot uh, potentially have way higher fluorescence values. However, this is important to note, it will not be a mapper, so you will get these stripes of measurements with huge gaps in between. In the end, we will cover less than two to 3% of the world's surface. So it, it will be sampling the Earth in the surface, but it will not map it completely because those instruments are designed to measure trace gases, not surface properties. And these trace gases that we are after are spatially much less variable than what you guys often think of surface properties <coughs> and vegetation remote sensing. And the last point is that the Fraunhofer line retrieval method is very robust. It's embarrassingly simple, it's fast, so I can run it on my own PC, do the recalculation of the whole data set, whereas like for an ACOS XCO2 retrieval, we need the whole cluster and it needs to run a couple of months to just reprocess a year. Whereas this can be done basically on a single computer. <clears throat> and more dedicated missions such as FLEX using the high spectral resolution covering both fluorescence peaks would greatly improve both fluorescence retrievals and potentially allow for leaf area index chlorophyll retrievals at the same time. And probably something like this mapping needs, needs to go in into the future if, if there's any other mission that's kind of dedicated towards fluorescence measurements. Um, but of course, there are some simple steps that actually could be done to reduce, to, to mitigate some of the um, immediate problems. One is to just enlarge the spectral range by a tiny little bit. So this is the range that we use for the GOSAT retrievals, where basically we have a cutoff at this 755 nanometer range, so we don't measure further down. But there are two nice, so this is a solar spectrum here on the top, and the red one would be a Jacobian with respect to fluorescence. And basically the sensitivity in this case would be triggered by the peak height of these lines, which are indicative of the infilling of a Fraunhofer line. So there are two big, big Fraunhofer lines here at around 750 nanometers. If we could measure those, we could actually get a single measurement precision, which is 
bit more than a factor two better than if you just use this range. And this is the same as having four times the samples. So this is a pretty big improvement. And then of course you can play around with full VSF maximum and the signal to noise ratio. Of course the higher the signal to noise ratio is, the better you get. But these are just simple ways. So you can imagine Luis has a paper now where we actually, he actually uses a, a far wider spectral range, something that you can observe with ground-based measurements, and then of course you can beat down the noise even further. <coughs> to conclude, um, I hope to have convinced you that the retrieval of chlorophyll fluorescence from space is feasible and now proven with real data. Um, and the method is validated on ground using kind of the oxygen A-band retrieval technique and the Fraunhofer-aligned retrieval technique. As mentioned before, it's pretty tricky to validate a product like this because we don't have anything that we can validate against. First of all, we don't have anything on spatial scales of 10 kilometers. Second of all, if we just, we can't validate a single measurement because on a single measurement, the noise is so high that we can't really validate one single measure. We can only validate something like a monthly average over a region. That's the main reason why so far we just came up with a GPP comparison because for us that was the first thing to look at on, on top of kind of the typical MODIS products. The, the method is really simple, and most importantly, it is very insensitive to atmospheric scattering, being able to sense fluorescence through thin clouds that might be quite powerful in the future. At least that's my opinion. And then even if we take the raw retrieval without really accounting to, uh, for the difference between the ratio of um, like theta F and theta P, what uh, Joe has shown, even without accounting for this, and um, the application of a single ancillary data set or model assumption, it actually seems to have more predictive skill in estimating GPP than any of the MODIS products. And the chlorophyll fluorescence retrievals from GOSAT and OCO2 in conjunction with their global atmospheric CO2 measurements will then provide an exceptional combination of kind of the vegetation perspective and the atmospheric perspective, which is more indicative of the net fluxes between the land and atmosphere. And that should constrain our model prediction for future atmospheric CO2 abundances. It's a little far-fetched now, but into the future, that's kind of the main goal. And the main goal of the workshop is also to put the fluorescence signal more into the global carbon cycle perspective instead of kind of the local leaf scale, something that, that's a little bit different in scope than the flex mission. Because we are coming from the ex-CO2 community, that's mainly what we are after. And that's it. <laughs>